My wife and I uh, enjoy in the evenings to watch murder mysteries. I know it's a little bit weird. Um, her family was always into the murder mysteries. When I first met her, they, I, remember, I remember sitting and watching Perry Mason episodes with them. Those of you who are older in the room are like, ah, Perry Mason, and younger people are like, who is that? So let me fill you in if you're younger, because I will fill in some of your older people about some references later. Um, if you're younger, Perry Mason was like the greatest lawyer who ever lived, but not, he's not real. He's a, he's a character who was played by a guy named Raymond Burr on, on TV in the 1950s, I think, or in the 60s, I think, black and white. Uh, always wins every trial that he's ever in. The defendant that he's representing is always innocent, as is always the case, apparently. So, uh, but, but the thing about, about Perry Mason is that the way that every show would finish, when you go for an hour and you discover all sorts of things about people, the way that every show would finish is that you would have a, um, a, like a confession on the stand, Perry Mason was such a good lawyer that he could get you to confess in front of everyone. Without a lawyer, he would sneak up on you, and next thing you know, you're saying, I did it. And you're like, oops. <laughs> he was amazing, Perry Mason. I remember one time, though, watching a Perry Mason, after we'd seen several Perry Mason episodes with my wife and her family, and her parents, her parents walked out of the room, and I leaned over to her, and I said, does it ever just occur to you that this is just so fake? Like, this is never the way it works. And she said, yeah, I know, but that's the, you get to watch it an hour and you go away happy all the time because justice is done. And I'm like, yeah, but justice is not done like that in the real world, is it? I mean, most of us recognize that, that, that oftentimes the person who's perpetrating a crime doesn't, either they don't even get caught, or if they do get caught, even with the smoking gun in hand, they're not, they're not punished. It's difficult for us. This actually... It's near to, near to my heart recently because uh, a couple years ago, my wife parked, uh, our, we, have a little, we had a little red uh, Toyota Matrix, and she went and parked a little Toyota Matrix down at Wilband Park. You know where Wilband Park is, just on Highway 11 there, on the Sumas uh, Highway? He, um, she parked it there, and she left her purse under the seat, which, just so you know, ladies, they, all the thieves know you leave your purse under the seat. Every last one of them is like, mm, there's nothing in there. I bet the purse is under the seat, Right? We were told by that the police later. You're not fooling anyone, <laughs> okay? So she left her purse under the seat. She, she said, I think I might have left the strap out a little bit. And, to, and she, so, so apparently this is a f- place that's frequented by thieves in our area. And um, she went for a walk. And the walk takes, I don't know, 30, 45 minutes. And so she went for a walk with a friend. And she came back and the window was bashed in and her purse was gone. She had her phone with her, and so she called me immediately. I was at work here, and she said, uh, I, someone stole my purse. It's terrible. They bashed in the window of the car, and I was like, okay, so let's cancel credit cards right, right away. So I get on the phone to the credit card company, and the, credit, the person I'm talking to on the credit card company is saying, well, let me check your account. And she said, oh, actually, someone's trying to charge something at Walmart right now. And a few minutes ago, they went to the gas station and charged uh, some gas. And just a few minutes before, before that, they were at Save on Foods and charged $400. And I said, that's not me. I'm here. My wife's stranded at the other, I mean, the window's all bashed in. And the, she said, oh, no, they're at Walmart. Oh, they're trying to swipe again. They're trying to get it through again. I said, you know this like real time? And she said, yeah, it's at till number four at the Walmart in, you know, Abbotsford, British Columbia. And so-and-so's working on that time. I mean, she knew everything. And I was like, oh, are there video cameras at those tills? Yes. Oh, we got them. We're going to get them. And she started to laugh. 
And I said, get, we're get, get him, because should I call the police? And she said, oh, the police don't care. And I was like, what? She said, no, they, like, the police, this is, they've got other things they need to do than catch the person who's trying to charge $300 at the Walmart. And I said, yeah, but it'll be on video. We can get the video and stuff. She said, you know, the amount of money that it would cost for us to get the video and prosecute this in the courts would be way higher than just letting the person just, you know, that's it. It's no big deal. You're not going to be charged for any of it, and so you're fine. And I said, fine, What's, who's going to deal with my window? I hope you have insurance, she said. <laughs> injustice. Even when they're caught red-handed, injustice. Well, that might be a little bit of a goofy. I mean, who cares, $200 window or whatever? I do. But who cares? <laughs> That's not as big a deal, though, as all the different ways. If you think about it, everybody I'm talking to right now, everybody I'm talking to can think back in their little rage fantasies, which we all have, and we think back to the people who have wronged us. They're the people we think about when everything is quiet, when we're trying to reflect on our lives and how they've gone and why they haven't gone the direction that we wanted them to go. Every one of us can remember how we've been wronged. And we struggle, honestly, to know what to do with those who've wronged us. We struggle to know, how do, I, how do I interact with that person? In many cases, those people have not apologized, or if they have been confronted with the facts, they've said, you're wrong, I was in the right, and you know in your heart that they were wrong. They're unwilling to admit it. And you want justice to be done, but you can't bring, you don't know how to go about, how do you live in a world where you come across those people at Costco? How do you, come, how do you live in a world where you come across those people around town? What do you do with that? And more generally, how do you deal with your enemies? And I know this, that's not a Christian thing to say, I get it. So how do you deal with your frenemies? <laughs> right? How do you deal with your opponents, with the people you're critics, the ones who you feel would be much happier if you weren't doing what you're doing, you weren't succeeding at what you're succeeding, that they wish your harm, maybe not physically, but certainly in the predicament of your life? How do you live with them? This passage actually is about that. How do you deal with outsiders? How do you deal with the, I titled this, How to Deal or Dealing with Mean People. So how do you deal with mean people, whoever they might be in your life? I'm going to give you five principles here, and the principles are, are straight from the passage itself. They're explicit. How you deal with mean people. I'd give you the list of the five up front, but it would all wash over you, so let's just deal with them in order. Okay, here's the first one. You got to reject payback. Like as a concept, you need to decide as a Christian, look, I'm not going to pay people back evil for evil. In fact, that's the language that's used in verse 17, the very beginning of it. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Because you and I know that that's the most natural response that we have to when, when somebody wrongs us. You did that to me? Oh, I'm going to do it to you. If you ever play a board game with me and you decide that you're going to wrong me in the board game, I don't care about anyone else at the board table. I am going after you. And my wife gets so mad at me, she'll say, why are you trying to take me out? Because you looked at me wrong. <laughs> but the kids are going to win. I don't care. You're not going to win. <laughs> right? Payback. Payback. And our culture lionizes payback, revenge. We lionize, you know what I mean? Lionize, we, we, that's what you're supposed to do, guys. Fight, when somebody fights you, you fight back. Somebody wrongs you, you you wrong them back. 
as, as much as you can. We learn that from our, I mean, our movies reflect this, don't they? That's how John Wick does it, right? Okay, so some of you in the room are who? Okay, so can I just disclaimer here? I am not recommending the film John Wick or anything having to do with John Wick or John Wick 1, 2, 3. They'll probably have seven John Wicks at some point. I'm not recommending. In fact, I'm not recommending any movie that has Keanu Reeves in it, period, okay? <laughs> but the story behind John Wick is interesting. It's a, it's a kind of a cultural phenomenon these days. John Wick is a guy who is, a, you end up finding af, after he's a hitman, but what you end up finding early on is he loses his wife, and then so the bad guys come to his house and kill his dog. The bad guys didn't kill his wife. She, she just died. But then he, he loves the dog, and the bad guys kill the dog. He spends the rest of the movie paying back everybody for the death of the dog. That's it, just the dog. No, so you shoot this guy, that guy, you killed the dog, you looked at someone who killed the dog, you, you, know, you know a dog, you know, it doesn't matter. He's just wiping everybody out. And there's, a, there's a, while you're watching the movie, I imagine, um, <laughs> you're, you're starting to cheer for John Wick. Go get him, John! And you're thinking, you're spilly over the dog. This is so overboard. That's the way our movies are, though. Think about all the other. I have a particular set of skills. You know, you have people... <laughs> You do. Somebody, the girl gets stolen or she gets kidnapped and the father, I'm going to pay you back and everybody. And this is the way our films, this is a storyline in a majority of our, of our movies. You're supposed to do that. And it's not just in film. Like, we believe it. We really do. We might in our minds be sitting here now and saying, no, I, I would reject payback. Do you? So I was driving back from uh, Oliver this last summer, we were spent a, a week or a few days up in Oliver camping, coming back, driving the three hours anyway. You know, a, sun, a Sunday afternoon in the summer, their cars are just back, backed up. There's not, we're all going the speed limit or a little above it, and, but, and everybody's really stacked up, really, especially in the left lane. And you know, I mean, we were between um, kind of Hope and Chilliwack, and um, you know that how it works. You're backed up in the left lane, and there's always the person, you know who you are, who comes around the right and decides, I'm going to pass all you guys and then cut in as quick as I can as before I get to the semi. And then I'll get past the semi, and then I'll pull in the right lane and pass everybody and then cut in. Even though everyone on the left's like, yeah, we're all trying to pass the semi too. Well, we were driving along, and there was this girl, I can see her in her, my rearview mirror, that she, she had kept doing this. She kept pulling out, around, and then cutting in. Like, people in the back were like, you could see their cars kind of lurching to the side. She didn't, it wasn't, she wouldn't check a blind spot, or she was kind of coming in. She finally came up to me, and I noticed that she was going to actually arrive, arrive right next to me when I was coming next to the semi. And so she's in the right lane, and the semi's in the right lane. She's right behind it, and she was going to come into the lane. And I thought, oh, surely she'll stop. So I just kind of kept going. But she didn't, didn't even look, decided that she was just coming over. Right? It's my divine right, baby, to come over into that lane. And I'm like laying on the wall. And I'm not, I'm not moving. And she, of course, went back into her lane and didn't even look at me. She's behind the semi now. And she just waved at me with the gesture. Right? And I'm like, okay, not today. 
right? That's it. I've been driving for three hours, right? Family, wife's been asleep, and I've been going over the Coca Hall. I'm done. I am done with all of this. So she pulls in behind me, and she's still waving at me. She's like she had a per- her finger was permanently stuck up, and she she had a dog. No kidding, a dog, a little tiny yappy dog on the front of the the like the dashboard, and his finger was up too, right? And so everybody. So I'm like, okay. So she gets in behind me, and so I, I'm going past this semi, and because I'm like, that's it. I just slowed right down. Right? Right now next to the semi. Semi's like, he's looking over at me like, what are you doing? And then, the, and then I'm just driving next to him, waving at him, and there's a line. Seriously, I'm doing this for a good four or five minutes. There's a lineup back to hope behind me. People are losing their minds, and she's especially losing her mind. She's weaving back and forth. Ah, fingers all going everywhere, right? She's throwing things out the window trying to... And I was like, yeah, this is so good, right? And finally, finally I get to the front of the semi, and I speed up, and she's, she's right on my tail. She's going to go to the right, and she's going to pass me. She's going to go in her little Civic. And she pulls around. I said, ah, Civic, whatever. Right, right up, and I went to the next semi and slowed right down, right? <laughs> Eventually, we get to Chilliwack, and she's been so angry right? And the guys behind her who'd been cut off came up and wouldn't let her come back in. And so she's losing her mind. And she finally gets off in Chilliwack where she lived, I bet, right? (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding, kidding, kidding. And isn't it funny, look, like even when I tell us that story, every one of us is like, that's right, that's right, that's what you do, right? You pay back, you pay back. You pay back. And yet what you find, what you find in, in, in Scripture, in, in Romans 12, okay, the context of this passage is in Romans 12, 2, the Apostle Paul says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this age, meaning the thinking that pervades our culture, that tells us that payback is the right thing, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, in what way? Don't repay anyone evil for evil. That the kingdom of God has different rules. That people who have been graced by a God, listen now, by a God who rejected payback for you, who didn't, who didn't repay evil for evil, but instead showed you grace. For a God who's done that for you, he's saying, okay, guys, as my children now, live according to the rules of the kingdom. What you've received, pass on. You find this throughout the New Testament. You really do. Matthew 5, 38, Jesus says it. You've heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. 1 Thessalonians 5, 15, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. 1 Peter 3, 9. Don't repay evil for evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called. You've been blessed. To this you were called that you might inherit a blessing. We're the people, we Christians are the people who aren't governed by revenge. We're we're the people who are governed by grace. We see this uh, just recently 
in a very sharp way the difference between the way that Christians act and the way that the world thinks we ought to act. In a story that happened, I don't know if you've been following it, um, a, few, uh, a few weeks ago, in fact, um, was a woman named Amber Geiger. She was a police officer in uh, Dallas, Texas. Amber was coming home from a shift on one day, and she came to her apartment building, took the elevator up. She thought she was getting off on the floor that is her floor. She was with other people in the elevator. She got up, she tired after a day of police work around the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and she walked out, walked down the hallway as she always had, was distracted by her phone and some other things, but she walked inside her apartment, and there was a man, a black man, sitting on the couch with a TV on. And so she, as a police officer, pulled her gun and shot him, and he died. She only realized afterward that she was not in her apartment but in his, that she had gotten off on the wrong floor, inadvertently walked into his apartment where he was getting ready to have dinner and watch TV, and she killed the black man on the couch. Now, it's important that he's black and she's a white police officer because in Dallas-Fort Worth, there's a massive racial challenge with the police and the black community. So this erupted. She, of course, goes to, to trial. She's convicted. The name of the man who was shot was Botham Jean. And there's a period after the conviction that the family members of Botham Jean get to sit before her and express to her their anger and frustration at what she's done and what it's cost them. Brant Jean, Botham's brother, gets on the stand while she's sitting in the defendant's chair and he starts to speak to her. But he doesn't say what you'd expect. What you expect from his is him is, how dare you? I hope you rot. You're just an awful person. You stole my brother from me, my beloved brother. But you don't get that. What you get from Brant Jean is, I want you to know that I forgive you for this. That if my brother were here, he and I were both followers of Jesus. And if my brother were here, he would want me to forgive and he would forgive you for it as well. But here's the thing he said. I want to make sure that you know that all of this is redeemable and will be redeemed if you come to faith in the same Jesus we serve. If you see the grace and you realize that that grace was shown me and is now being shown you. I mean, the whole place is silent. It's on video. You can watch it if you like. He then turns to the judge and said, can I, can I go and hug her? Which is, what? They don't know what to do, so the judge says, yeah, okay. So he walks across the courtroom, and the black brother of the killed man, in Christian love, hugs the woman who killed him. She's breaking, she's sobbing. You can watch this. Went viral, this video. And the reaction to it was interesting, because the Christians who saw this go viral were like, right, right. That's what Jesus did. That's the way that we Christians ought to act. We often don't, but that's what we ought to do. But the other response was, how dare he? How dare he forgive this woman? He should pursue payback. And you can see the difference between the kingdom of God and its rules and the kingdom of this age and its rules. You and I are kingdom of God people, though. 
You and I are kingdom of God people. So reject payback. Second, don't unnecessarily offend. A little shorter now. Don't unnecessarily offend. Look at the second part of verse 17. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. One of the commentators, Colin Cruz, uh, on this passage, he said, when Paul speaks about doing what's right in the eyes of everyone, he's not suggesting that believers should simply let their behavior be, to be determined by public opinion, but that under God, they should be careful not to offend outsiders unnecessarily. In other words, the outsiders, the opponents to the Christian faith, already have reason not to like you and me. They might think that you're immoral. They might think that you're acting wrong in the culture because you obey the rules of the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of this age. So they already got something against you. Why pour kerosene on that fire by acting in ways that offend them unnecessarily? This is what Paul's essentially saying. And you find this language in other places. 2 Corinthians 8.21, Paul says, For we are taking pains to do what's right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. 1 Peter 2.12, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, because they don't understand who you are and what you, though they accuse you of doing wrong, oh, I hate those Christians. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You're going to prove them wrong by the way that you act. But that's not really the way that we often act, right? I know it's not the way I've often acted. I've often taken the adversaries of Christianity and thought, well, if you want to fight against me, I want to fight against you, right? Repay evil for evil. I'm kind of ashamed to tell you this story, but it happened when I was 16 years old and um, my body was outgrowing my brain at the time. Um, I had a friend, we were invited to go to this other couple's house. Uh, it was the atheist guy and his, his Mormon girlfriend. And we were just going over to play board games or whatever. We got in a conversation about religion and this, this atheist guy was really vitriolic, really mean-spirited toward Christians. He didn't say a lot, but he said a few things, and he finally found out that we were Christians. He says, oh yeah? Fools believe in Christianity. I dare you to prove to me that it's true, that there is a God, that Jesus has anything to do with it, or that he even lived. I dare you, he said with his chin sticking out. Dare you. And I was like, mm. <laughs> let me take off my coat and shirt. Right? Because it's, it's go time. And so I, we started to go at it. And I'm, I, I'm gifted with the gift of verbal assault. And I'm like going for it. Zing, 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 zing. And he, when he'd make a point, I'd just make my point louder. Right? And his girlfriend is getting pinned back. For the next 30, 45 minutes, we were going at it. And, and I mean, it was an all-out barrage that he was facing in the end. She finally broke in and said, said, I don't like the way you're talking to me. You don't like the way you're talking. It's so demeaning the way you're talking to him about this. She said, I mean, I don't agree with him either. I'm a Mormon. And I said to her, don't get me started on the Mormons. <laughs> and after that, she said, I'd, I, I'd like you to leave. 
So we walked out, me and my friend, we walked out the front door. I remember what I said the moment we were walking down the steps. I remember where I was. I remember where in the Seattle area it was. I could have walked down the steps. I was on the third or fourth step down, and I said, well, some people get offended by the gospel. Were they? Is that what they were offended by? The gospel. 47-year-old Jeff says to 16-year-old Jeff, no, no young man, they were not offended by the gospel. They were offended by the tone that you used to try to communicate the gospel if it was even there. And if it was there, the verbal barrage was, had created such a cloud of dust and smoke, nobody could see it, man. They're already against the faith. They're already negative towards you. They're they don't like the gospel to begin with. Why are you going in there and chucking kerosene on that fire? You're going to share it with them. They're going to have enough to oppose you on the, on the merits of it. Why, through your tone, are you not just doing what's right in the eyes of all people? This doesn't just apply to the way that we talk to each other, though, in, about the gospel and outsiders like that. So, you know, imagine you have a neighbor and you have some property and you're going to build a, a barn or a house or a, some building on the edge of the property and your neighbor who is a, doesn't like Christianity, knows you're a Christian and is against you and struggles with your, they're an opponent in some way, comes to you and says, please don't build that barn because, you know, it's going to block my view or it's going to do blah, 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 whatever reasons. And our in that moment, we have a response to make, and, and it's, it's either, I don't care what you think. It's my property. I can do what I want with it. Shut your mouth. Or, listen, let's engage and figure out a way that maybe both of, this could work for both of us. Tell me what your concerns are. What I'm, what I'm saying is that Paul's urging you to say, look, choose the second option. Choose the second option. Don't unnecessarily offend Reject payback, don't necessarily offend. Third, understand, though, that peace is sometimes impossible. Understand, though, that, that peace is sometimes impossible. Listen to verse 18. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. See, what I expect Paul to write here, he starts in verse 17. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Second, be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. Third, you expect immediately live at peace with everyone. That would make sense. Command, command, command. You kind of get that, but in the third command, the live at peace with everyone, he couches it with a couple qualifiers, doesn't he? I mean, if, if at all possible, and as long as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Why does he, why does he use the qualifiers? Because he's not stupid. <laughs> He understands that sometimes you can try and try and try and try and try to make peace with people, with your opponents, and sometimes they just will not have it. And you and I are not ultimately responsible for the response that they give. We are responsible with the attempts at making peace. In the, in the early church, it's a big deal. The Romans hated the Christians on on moral and philosophical grounds. If you were a Roman, you hated Christians because the Christians were worshiping another god and saying that all of your gods were not real. And because your gods were not receiving the worship from a growing number of people who were converting to Christianity, those gods of yours were repaying you with less rain for the crops, fewer children, 
less prosperity. And so if you're a Roman, you're thinking, you know, what, what do we need to do to solve the world's problem, you know, their election time? What do we need to do to make sure that our future is better? And the answer was, kill the Christians. Get rid of the Christians. Kick them out. Do whatever you can. If a Christian came to somebody who had that belief, then they would say, no, you don't understand. There's a guy named Justin Martyr, in fact, who wrote, an, he wrote some apologetic stuff. And he said, you don't understand. The way you understand us is totally wrong. And he wrote this stuff. And they all said, shut your mouth. You're wrong. We hate you. We hate you. We hate you. And it didn't matter what the Christians did. It didn't matter. No matter what they tried to do to make peace, it just didn't, it didn't matter. See, if at it, if it all possible, as long as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You know, some of you have been bullied, or you know kids who have been bullied. You know what kids do when they first get bullied? They usually try to find a way for the bully to back off through kindness. Do you understand? Like, well, the bully's doing this because he doesn't understand who I am and what I'm like. If you just understood who I am and what I like, right? So you go to school the next day, look for the bully. Hey, bully. It's usually not, they don't usually say that. Hey, bully. Can you, it's, bully's usually named Chad or whatever, sorry, <laughs> right? So you, if your name's Chad, I apologize <laughs> for saying that. Um, but you, you go to the school and they say, hey, bully, uh, can, can we just get, talk about this? Can we figure this out and blah, blah, blah. And the bully's like, shut up. I don't hate, I hate you. Stop talking to me, blah, blah. So the next day, the kid kind of amps it up and said, I make you a cupcake or whatever, and it's a break, it's huge cupcake, and I bought it at Tracy Cakes even. It cost me my whole allowance. Here, take the cupcake. And the kid's like, eh, throws it on the ground and squishes it. Next day, I bought you hockey tickets. They're on the bench, right? You get to play in the game. <laughs> and the kid's like, I hate hockey and you. And no matter what he does, and he eventually comes to you and says, dad, mom, friend, whatever, what do I do? You know what you tell them. Look, sometimes bullies got a bully. And I see you trying to make peace, but you're not responsible for his response. You're responsible for your attempts at peacemaking. As long as it depends on you, if at all possible, live at peace with everyone. Here's the fourth one. You got to leave it to God. Verse 19. Um, don't take my re revenge. He comes back to the first point that he was making. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, I mentioned a few minutes ago that you and I have rage fantasies. Uh, you do. I do. I know I do. I usually have them when I, I mow the lawn. Um, that's why I don't mow the lawn anymore. I send my kids out to mow the lawn, and if they don't do it, then I have other rage fantasies. Um, I don't know why it is, but when I used to go out and mow the lawn, it was just sort of, I would think about, and I can tell you exactly who I thought about. This guy in New Zealand who I met one time, and he found out that I went to Dallas Theological Seminary, and he said, oh, some good Southern theology there. And I stood there shocked, like, like, what do you mean, like slave-owning Southern theology? 
uh, I was shocked and I didn't respond. He just turned away. And that line has made me so irritated for years that I have come up with so many great comebacks to this guy. <laughs> so many. I always thought to myself, if I go back to New Zealand, I'm going to find him and I'm going to, like if you remember Seinfeld, like the jerk store, like I'm going to go and I'm going to find out where he lives and I'm going to deliver one after another all of the lines I've been thinking out by lawn, through lawn mowing over the years. I mean, I've received critical emails and comments, and I've responded in emails, which most of you have not received. Um, <laughs> somebody will read them, and they'll say, this is a great email, Jeff. It also will probably kill the church. And, you know, <laughs> but, you know, I think about how it is that I can pay, even the lady who pulled up next to me, no joke, I have thought in the past, just in quiet moments, like... You know what I should have done is just followed her off the freeway. I should have gone off the freeway, followed her to her house, walked up to her car and said, give me that dog. You know? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know? That's what, this is the content of our rage fantasies. We all have them. We all have them. We have the greatest comebacks ever in those rage fantasies. And the reason that we want to give the payback, the reason that we're convinced that it's the right way to go is because we feel if we don't take revenge, justice won't be done. Like you're the one who, has, who, who can respond to that injustice. You're the only one who can do it. And if you don't do it, it's a cosmic error. You must balance the force. And in that moment, you and I become practical atheists because you aren't the right person to make that determination. There is one in the universe who will make amends. There is one to whom we will all give account. And the benefit he has that you don't have is he sees all things rightly. You and I, we judge quickly, snap judgments, and when we give our judgments and our sentencing, we go way overboard just to prove a point. So what Paul is saying here is, look, leave it in the hands of God. More properly, leave it to the wrath of God. Now, and i got to be clear here. I, I, want you to, I want you to see what he's actually saying. He's not saying, oh, just forget about it because nothing can be done. That wrong that you experienced, just forget about it. Nothing can be done about it. He's saying, no, 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 I want you to leave it to the one who can hold all people to account. I want you to leave it in his wrathful hands. Now, that doesn't sound very Christian, does it? Okay, so, Paul, you want me to hand this person over so that the wrath of God might be laid out on them. Hmm. That doesn't seem Christian. <laughs> But I want to show you, in fact, if that's the way you think about this, I want to show you, in fact, that it's quite Christian. So I want you to show you uh, a couple of ways. First of all, in the Old Testament, and if you go read the Psalms, one of the, one of the kinds of Psalms that you will read, it's called the imprecatory Psalms. The imprecatory Psalms are basically the God get them Psalms, right? So, so God, these people, that person has wronged us, the wicked, the wicked are wronging us, arise, O Lord, and... Pay back. I'm not going to pay back, Lord, but I'm praying that you will. That's what the Psalms are about. So, Psalm 10, verse 12. Arise, Lord. Lift up your hand, O God. Don't forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why 
Does he say to himself, he won't call me to account, but you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider the grief or their grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Ready for it? Break the arm of the wicked man. Call the evildoer to account for his wickedness that would not otherwise be found out. He's hiding it, Lord. Arise. Let your justice roll, Lord. Another one. Psalm 109. My God, whom I praise, don't remain silent for people who are wicked and deceitful have opened their mouths against me. They've spoken against me with lying tongues. With words of hatred, they surround me. They attack me without cause. In return for my friendship, they accuse me. But I'm a man of prayer. They repay me evil for good and hatred for my friendship. Then verse 29, may my accusers be clothed with disgrace and wrapped in shame as in a cloak. Get them, God, says the Holy Spirit through the psalmist. Oh, yeah, that's the Old Testament, Jeff. A lot of mean stuff in the Old Testament. Okay, so in the last line of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, one of the last lines of the Bible is the Apostle John saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's a prayer from the Apostle. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's the prayer that Christians like me and you pray when we see injustice in our world, when we see news of rape and pestilence and murder and war. When we hear about cancer, we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We hear about shootings, come quickly, Lord Jesus. What are you praying for there? Well, yeah, you want the world to be made right. What is it going to take for the world to be made right? Because Revelation 19, just a couple chapters before, describes the coming of the Son of God. And when he's coming, he's coming on clouds with a sword coming out of his mouth and a tattoo down his legs. And he slays the wicked. That's the future, according to the book of Revelation. So it is very right for you to pray, Lord, take this injustice that I've experienced and the person who's perpetrated it against me, I will not seek revenge on them. I'm going to leave it in your wrathful hands. And all one day will be made right. Yes, you want that wrath as a Christian. Yes, you want that wrath to be dealt with in Christ just as it was dealt with with you so that they won't face the wrath of God at the end. Instead, Jesus will have paid it for them. Yes, yes, you pray that first. But if that doesn't happen, justice will be done by our just and righteous God. And you can rest there. Listen, if you have been abused or if you have been abandoned, if you have been wronged on severe levels, you need to own this. God will make it right, and you can rest there. But the last question is, what do you do with the person who wronged you? Like, how do you act toward them in the meantime? And everybody with Canadian blood in their veins, just like me, says passive-aggressively. <laughs> right? You act like you like them, but behind closed doors, you wish for their immediate termination. <laughs> but look what Paul says. 
On the contrary, so on the contrary to taking revenge. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. You see, in doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with, with good. And everybody reads that. They're like, ooh, burning coals. That sounds good, right? That's what I want to do to my frenemy. <laughs> Give me the coals. I'm going to lay them upon his head myself and get a blowtorch, right? This will be good. Actually, the, what's going on there is the, the, there is an ancient Egyptian ritual that if, if I had wronged you and I had come to be convinced that I had wronged you, you who had approached me and maybe we had fights for years or whatever, and I had come to the conclusion that I had actually wronged you, the way that I would demonstrate my penitence, the way I'd demonstrate that I was sorry for what I'd done, is I would take a tray, a pan, and I would place charcoal on it, and I would light that charcoal up. And I would walk in front of you with charcoal on my head, with burning coals on my head. And by doing it, I would be saying, I'm so sorry for the wrong I've done. So what Paul is saying here is, is we don't show revenge, but we show hospitality, right? We're giving water to those who are thirsty, and we give food to those who are hungry. We, we, we don't show revenge, but we show hospitality to those who've wronged us, and this might lead them to repentance. This kindness that we're showing them may, doesn't always, but may lead them to a point where they're like, oh, you're right. And sometimes that happens. One of the great illustrations in the Bible of where that happened is 1 Samuel 24. It's a great story. I mean, what you've got is David is being chased by the king Saul because David has been anointed as the new king. And Saul's like, well, if I kill the new king, then I'll still be king. So he gets 3,000 of his men, and he chases David into the, into the wilderness. They can't find him. David's a good hider. And so they get up there in the wilderness, and, and no kidding, Saul, it says in the scripture, 1 Samuel 24, that Saul had to, had to relieve himself, okay? He had to go into a cave to relieve himself. You can figure out exactly what he's doing in there, right? But it's probably going to take longer than the number one kind. So there he is. He's, he's in there squatting, squatting down in the most exposed and vulnerable position you can be, yes? What he doesn't know is in that very cave is David and David's mighty men. And David's mighty men come up behind David because they're further back in the cave. They say, that's Saul. He's totally exposed, David. The Lord has laid him in your hands. Go get him. And David, you can kind of feel, it's like, ooh, yeah, maybe. Then he gets to the edge and he's like, no, I'm just going to cut off the cloak. And he cuts off a piece of the cloak and he comes back and he feels really bad because he's like, he's still the king. I shouldn't have done that. I don't want to dishonor God or... God will bring me to the kingdom when, when it's good, his time. Saul cleans himself up, goes out of the cave. David comes behind him and says, hey, Saul. Saul quickly turns around, sees David. David said, okay, you need to know that you were in there just a minute ago, totally vulnerable, and I and my buddies were in there, and we could have killed you. In fact, I took this edge of your cloak to show you how close I was to you, but you need to know, Saul, that I'm not your enemy. You've treated me very badly. You keep chasing me, and you need to know that you're in the wrong, Saul. 1 Samuel 24, 16 says, when David finished saying this, Saul asked, is this your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You're more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I've treated you badly. And there's Saul with 
burning coals on his head. Listen, there was a lady, I'll finish with this. There was a lady I knew of who uh, was on a hockey team and um, a bunch of Christian parents were on the hockey team and there were a few families who didn't like Christians. In fact, one woman on the team didn't like Christians at all. She said that in the first meeting of the team. She looked back, noticed some of the people who were Christians from years past and said, great, we've got a bunch of Christians on this team. When she was openly oppositional to the Christians on the team for various reasons, was mean, unkind, spoke about their kids the wrong way, always wanted her kid to be the first player, and if he wasn't, she criticized everybody else. They played together with this, this woman and her family for years, these Christians. Anyway, the woman who was very critical ended up uh, contracting cancer. And she was going through chemotherapy and she was going through the, these Christian parents, the mothers especially, got together and said, listen, even though she's been very unkind to us, why, why don't we make sure that she will always have a meal to eat while she's going through chemotherapy every night? But we'll make sure that for the next month she doesn't have to cook. So they did. They would show up at her doorstep and give her this thing over and over and over again. The woman finally, she survived. It was great. But as soon as it was over, she came back to the team, sat down next to some of these parents, right in the middle of some of these Christian parents, started to weep and said, I am so sorry. I didn't know who you were. Look, people have wronged you and me. We've been badly treated in many places. And the temptation for you and I is to be overcome with evil. But we're Christians. We're not the people who are overcome with evil. We overcome evil with good. Yes? Let me pray for us. I'm, I'm thankful, Father, for your word and for your grace. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand these things better and better as we go on. And Lord, I know that there are lots of people in the room here. I'm trusting that your spirit would go and, then, and you would apply this in a specific circumstance, Father. Given illustrations and things like that here, but I know there's a specific circumstance in the lives of all the people who are sitting here, Lord, that you, by your spirit, want to put your hand on and you want to show them how a kingdom Christian acts differently. Help us all with this, we pray, by the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.